This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Those are questions, political questions, that are not sufficiently being answered or dealt with. And in a sense, inner city communities are on the receiving end of the failure to deal with those bigger questions. Um, and we need to start gripping those bigger questions. And there's a real issue as to why we're not. Is it in the end because black lives don't matter? Or certainly they don't matter as much. And that's the tough, hard side of this story. My guest this week is David Lammy, Labour MP for Tottenham, Shadow Lord Chancellor, and Shadow Secretary of State for Justice. Mr. Lammy has been a member of Parliament for 21 years, and he is also the author of the new book, Tribes, How Our Need to Belong Can Make or Break Society. If you follow UK politics, it's difficult to miss him. But for those of you who don't, you'll quickly realize he's the kind of politician we want working for us and for our futures. Here's our conversation. Welcome to Everyday Ubuntu, the Right Honorable David Lammy. Thank you so much for joining me. You have no idea how excited I am. I'm going to try not to fangirl. Um, my My friend Suki Fuller told me to stay cool so that's what i'm gonna do um, <laughs> good for you <laughs> lucky but me. i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna start by asking you the question that i ask all my guests and it's uh something my mom says about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person and so i'm wondering what you would say is missing from your resume i think what is missing from my resume resume is the realness um of growing up in inner city london in the 1970s um with elder brothers who were sometimes getting into trouble with the police because of the sus laws with a father that was struggling really under the pressures of particularly by the early 1980s of margaret thatcher unemployment um he drank a lot my parents' marriage was not a happy marriage and the strife and anxiety that breeds in children. I think that's missing from my resume and, and it's really a big important part of who I am. I think that... Um, uh, and the resume doesn't talk about the things you're, you failed. You know, I, I, I'm really bad at driving. I failed my driving test. <laughs> Um, it and it doesn't talk about um, however much you've achieved, what it means to be uh, working class and black. And even if you're successful, as I kind of turned out to be in the 20s, in my 20s, there's a profound imposter syndrome that you experience, a profound sense of loneliness. And is this really, can I do this? in your first steps uh, in work. So I really remember that as a young lawyer um, and as a young member of parliament. No CV can tell you that. Yeah, the word you use there, loneliness, is is what people don't seem to like click onto, is that, you know, you can be achieving all of this, but it, it can be very lonely. Yeah, yeah. And in the end, I am really... Uh, <laughs> no different i'm still that guy that grew up in tottenham whose parents came to this country 
from Diana in the Caribbean. You know, that's that's who I am um, deep inside. <laughs> and did you always want to be an MP when you were younger? Uh, look, I think I worked out that I didn't want the kind of stress that my parents had. I grew up in an era where, you know, you had to take jobs to, so that income was coming into the home. So, you know, I worked as a security guard. I worked in Kentucky Fried Chicken. I worked in McDonald's. Um, you know, I worked in a clothes women's store, shifting a warehouse, shifting boxes. Um, and I kind of started to work out that I didn't want those jobs to be my permanent job. Um, and so I thought about lots of things. I thought about being a priest. I thought about being a pilot. Um, but I sort of landed on being a barrister because I was argumentative. Um, <laughs> I liked the idea of doing a job that commanded immediate respect. Um, I, I was political, but I don't think I was brave enough to say I wanted to be a politician at that stage. Law was much more accessible, even though we didn't know any lawyers. Um, and so I think I got to law because... You know, there are a lot of lawyers that end up getting to, sorry, politics, because in the end, you kind of want to ask bigger questions. Why questions? You know, why is that young guy in jail? Why has that business gone bankrupt? And you, that gets you to policy and you want to change the world. And that's, that's, that's my story. And then, you know, being in politics as, I mean, I'm currently in South Africa, but as someone who is usually looking at UK politics from the US, you know, friends will often ask, how how do you deal with the like frustratingly slow pace of politics in the UK? Or does it not feel slow to you? No, I've definitely got to a stage uh, where uh, there are aspects of it that feel incredibly slow and race is sadly one of them. There feels like a stop, start, stop, start approach that this year, I think since Black Lives Matter, things have felt very, um, the what you hear from the black community that we're tired, that this, we're having the same old conversation, but not, not no action. I think that um, somehow there's a part of this country uh, following this, the decision to exit the European Union that has regressed. Um, there's a sort of ethnic nationalism that people sometimes feel and, 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 and certainly I feel that doesn't doesn't include me. Um, so that that is, you know, that's tough. That's definitely tough. However, um, I think two things. There's a lot of hope as well. I'm really hopeful about the millennials and Generation Y and that generation who really get this stuff. Uh, they haven't got power yet, but they will have. Um, and actually, yeah, politics is tough, but, you know, there are some positive things. The biggest ethnic group in Britain are people of mixed heritage. And what that means, they're a younger uh, group, but what that means is black people and white people are falling in love and they're having babies. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't matter who, what true. races say, that is what is happening, right? And that is positive. That That's something to hold on to because that is the future. And so that's real people's lives and real people's stories. And so I'm sort of, I think that gives me hope. And that's, you know, you, you fight on behalf of those young people. And I think 
Um, the second thing I would say is, as my mother always said to me, whenever I was getting down or feeling sorry for myself, um, she would say, live up to your ancestors' prayers. And she was there evoking my ancestors who were enslaved people. And she was saying, I don't care how hard you're feeling it today. <laughs> they prayed you would be here. They prayed that you would be doing what you're doing, that you would be right where mm -hmm. you are at this moment. And, you know, we can all take heart from that, whoever our ancestors are. And, um, and so you just keep going on. Yeah, the ancestors are very, very important, I would say. And and you mentioned something about this sort of like ethnic nationalism that, you know, people don't think that you would you would belong in that group. And it makes me think about your book, Tribes, where you sort of speak on our need to belong and how strong that need is and, and it can sort of break society. How do you think we make sure that everyone feels they belong? Well, the first thing is the diagnosis. You've got to diagnose the problem. You've got to see it as a problem. And the truth is, increasingly, in countries like the UK, you see it in the United States, you saw it um, under Donald Trump particularly, our countries feel enormously divided. Um, the polarisation seems massive. There are groups of people shut out of the national story populism and nasty aggressive populism is on the rise um and it's not it's it's not just divide across ethnic groups it's generational divides um it's it's um what people talk about an identity politics that that splits us all apart even though of course i would defend the right to speak up on behalf of black and ethnic minorities wherever wherever they are in the world uh but we're struggling to stress what's in what we have in common. I think we also have this mental health crisis because I think social media, in some ways, the pandemic is driving a lot of this stuff. So you have to identify the problem and then you've got to be in the business of bridging divides. That's the business of nation building. You know, it's the stuff that so many countries in the Commonwealth in Africa and the Caribbean were in the business of doing when they got their independence. Nation building. What are the songs we sing together? Who are the people that we are? How do we come together? What is our national voice? What is our national language? But how do we protect minorities? Um, it, we associate it with big countries like Canada, um, for example. United States, how do we come to... Europe is a bit, can be a bit lazy about that. European countries, old European countries. You know, we, we've done all that nation building. We are who we are. The problem with that is in the UK, sometimes that can hark back years. And, and even when it harks back to, you know, Elizabeth I or Henry VIII or, you know, or winning the Second World War, it still even then is not inclusive. It, it, it skips over colonialism. It doesn't mm -hmm. explain why people like me and my parents are in this country. And it um, so it glosses over some of the tough stuff that people don't want to talk about. Um, and it it paints a story of greatness that is is it, it relies heavily on an ethnic national identity, not a civic one that includes everybody. Absolutely. And that's that's what I explore, by the way, in my book, Tribes. So thank you for mentioning Oh, and I have it. I have it here. So I'm going to need you to, to autograph it one day. Thank you. So then, you know, okay, sort of 
going along this of like identifying the problem, I know that you also care a lot about sort of the way that they discuss knife crime in the UK and how youth are affected and youth are involved. And so what what do you think sort of the solution is for youth to feel safe and thrive in London and the and the greater UK? Well, we, we have this huge problem of knife crime uh, here in, in cities like London. Um, already in my constituency this year, I think four people have lost their, four young people have lost their lives to knife crime. So this is real. Uh, it's a very present danger. And parents like me fear their young boys going out into the street. And there's a nihilism about it. People are, young people are being killed over very, very little. Um, I tend not to want to stress the emphasis on knives and on gangs because I think there's a bigger story. Uh, the bigger story is in the end about drugs. Um, the bigger story is about grooming, adults grooming young children to run drugs across the country. Um, there is a bigger story about drug policy, by the way, um, because most of this is driven by turf war and it's driven, driven by demand for serious amounts, particularly of cocaine, uh, across the country. And the truth is, very few of these black boys <laughs> that are being arrested for knife crime even know where Colombia is, let alone how to organise the transshipment of cocaine across big boundaries. No, th those are questions, political questions, that are not sufficiently being answered or dealt with. And in a sense, inner city communities are on the receiving end of the failure to deal with those bigger questions. Um, and we need to start gripping those bigger questions. And there's a real issue as to why we're not. Is it in the end because black lives don't matter? Or certainly they don't matter as much. And that's the tough, hard side of this story. I mean, a lot's been said in the United States that uh, that was the case in the United States amongst African-American populations where there was a crack epidemic. But frankly, it didn't matter. It was only really when the opioid epidemic yep. affected America and affected white lives, that there was started to be a much more honest discussion about drug policy and about incarceration policy. Um, and I'm afraid, uh, I, I fear that that may be part of the story here in the UK. Well, yeah, you even look at the, the legalization of marijuana in the US and then, so then all these people who are incarcerated for marijuana offenses, what are we gonna do? if we are legalizing it and allowing people to make money off of it. And that comes back to bigger questions about equity, not just equality, but equity. How do we address the inbuilt imbalances that were already there? Who gets access to those new green jobs, for example, in this green economy uh, that we want to build, often in countries like the UK um, and the US? If you now have an industry in the, this is, a, a, I know a conversation in Canada, and the United States is not yet a conversation here because over here, um, cannabis has not been legalized or decriminalized. Uh, but in those countries, if you've now made this legal and you're now saying people can have industries and can grow it, how do you enfranchise black and brown communities who are imprisoned and criminalized with the new industry? Uh, and those are profound questions. Well, I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot, but you are the first black MP to hold the justice position in parliament. And I'm wondering what that sort of means to you. I don't tend to think too much about those firsts. Uh, you know, I have had a lot of them in my life, I'd be honest with you. Um, 
And I don't say that from a position of arrogance. Um, it slightly worries me that it is still the case here in the UK that you hear this first story, <laughs> the first black person to do X, first black person to do Y. I don't know if that is any longer a positive thing. I think it's a worrying thing that that is still happening in 2021 in a way. Um, that there are still so many glass ceilings to break. Uh, there, you know, there are, you know, and I, you know, I heard last week that despite so many wonderful um, black barristers and lawyers that I know, that there's no black female judge here in the centre of London um, in our Crown Courts. I think that's really worrying. Um, I, I, you know, we've got real challenges around who's in our boardroom tables, um, you know, who's running our FTSE 100 companies here um, in the in the UK. You know, there's such a small amount of black professors in our universities. So I, I don't I don't you know, of course, it's a huge privilege to have the justice portfolio. Um, and for me personally, because I have been long associated with these issues for many, many years in our country, um, it's a huge privilege um, to be able to talk with authority about these issues um, as a spokesman for the British Labour Party. But um, I don't I don't dwell too much on the first because in a way I've got a bit weary of the, of those firsts. Yeah, it's, it's like we're moving too slow. I spoke to a woman in the U.S. named Susan Burton who helps formerly incarcerated people and they've described her as the modern day Harriet Tubman. And she was like, what does it mean that we need a modern day Harriet Tubman? Like, why would you call me that? <laughs> this is not a good thing We that yeah, we need a Harriet Tubman yeah. in 2020, yeah, 2021. Yeah, 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 that's the point uh, put, put very well. So then I wonder, you know, in these these difficult times and difficult moments, both COVID, but also everything that has happened with Black Lives Matter, what sort of keeps you going and sustains you in your in your fight for justice? Oh, I, I'm sustained because I stand on my ancestors' shoulders. I'm sustained because I say with all power and all truth that... I am still here. You are still where you are. We are still visible. Um, I'm sustained by the hope of so many young black people going to university and doing tremendous things in this country and others. I'm sustained by the hope of the continent of Africa um, and the growth that we're seeing, the entrepreneurship that we're seeing emerging from so many countries. Um, I bathe in the warmth of the Caribbean sun. <laughs> um, I, I'm sustained by, I mean, we've seen some wonderful writing and books and articles um, coming out of the UK. You know, people like Renietta Lodge, Afua Hirsch, David Olusoga. I mean, just wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um there's so much to sustain. I'm sustained by my children. I'm sustained by my my wife um, and her love and and her her desire to learn uh, as a white woman um, and her wonderful broader extended family, um, um, uh, old friends. So there's lots that sustain me. I'm sustained by my faith. I don't 
I don't wear my faith um, in a proselytizing way, but but my faith, my Christian faith does sustain me um, uh, definitely and nourish me. Um, so there's quite a lot, my football team even, even though they're not terribly good this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you mentioned, you know, the, the writings and the books that are coming out of the UK and, and I'm always cognizant of when you deliver a speech or write an article that your words always seem to capture the moment. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering how you're able to do that time after time. Uh, so I think there's a couple of things. I am a believer in politics in trying to be a bit of a specialist and not a generalist. Uh, I do sort of stay in my lane um so justice issues education issues race and poverty issues tend to be what i'm associated with um i have views on foreign policy um defense and other things but i tend not to say that much publicly about those things so i do stay in my lane and therefore you tend to find that the system looks to you when things come up and when you say things i'm not rent a quote i'm not speaking about every single thing that's going on every every day or every week um, that does help, I think, in politics. I think the second thing is I have really, really tried um, to stay authentic to who I am. Now, look, politics is about the art of compromise. Um, it, it is about collective responsibility within your political party. Um, and that does mean sometimes compromise. But I have tried to stay true to what I believe. And my wife often says, she's a portrait painter, that if you watch people, you come into politics and they start off with their face really straight, like, like I'm talking to you. And then they end up sort of speaking out the side of their mouth. It, literally their <laughs> mouth moves. And, and, and I, I have, I think, looking at you, I'm pretty straight on. I, 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 I have tried to stay true to what I believe in who I am. And um, and broadly speaking, I think I've got that just about right. Just about right. I, I think you have, um, but I'm, I'm probably biased. <laughs> so my mother says that all fights for justice are connected. And I know that you sort of, you did a TED talk on climate justice not being able to happen without racial justice. And I'm wondering if you could explain that a little bit. Well, it's to remember the phrase I can't breathe as I say it my eyes well up and to recall <laughs> that um, in that story of I can't breathe is um, not just a story of obviously losing your life most often at the hands of the police but I think Eric Garner um, uh was asthmatic um and actually here in cities like london there are young black and brown children dying literally because they cannot breathe and or you know the 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 the, the face of climate change is a black and brown face it's a face of famine it's a face of flood it's a face of the indigenous people of the amazon being burnt out of their homes it's the war in Darfur. That is the face of climate change in the world. It's, it's, it's black people living in polluted communities in the United States 
it's Native Americans on reservations. It's the young girl Ellie Kissy Deborah dying of air pollution here in London. And if you want to march for George Floyd, and I understand that because I'm with you, please also march for climate justice and our lives. And that's that's what that's that's what I keep repeating. It, this is not and, and, and why is why is the climate emergency business such a white business <laughs> when that is the case? That's the truth. So um, even there, there are some structural issues to address. Um, it, and that includes in some of the not for profits that do great work on climate, uh, on climate, um, on the climate emergency. But I'm not sure on the issues of climate justice, they're doing quite enough. I agree with that. I uh, I spoke to the endurance swimmer, Lewis Pugh, and he was speaking about how South Africa is so bad with its its sort of laws of protection around the oceans. And it's he says he thinks it's because, you know, so many South Africans actually have never really had access to their oceans. And I was like, well, that's an interesting thought, you know? Why are the communities that are harmed the most not necessarily given access or or brought into these conversations? Absolutely. Think of communities in the Caribbean Sea that every late August, September, get on their knees and pray that hurricanes aren't going to tear their countries apart. Um, so, you know, we need to talk more. And that's a whole other podcast i'm happy to come back okay i'm I'm holding you to that uh, about that issue well so my next question has to do with your um your speeches that i see you're often sort of you know people criticize you for showing your temper as they would say and and i wonder if you think this policing of your tone has to do with your race like how how do you respond to these critiques because I wonder if you think your style allows you to connect with, for lack of a better term, regular people. Um, you know, I see it as passion and care. There are stereotypes, aren't there, around about black men um, that are powerful, that we're thick, uh, that we're sexually promiscuous, that we're lazy, um, and that we're quick to anger and we're to be feared. And... Um, I am sometimes described as passionate. I actually think that says much more about my colleagues than it does about me. It says much more about the lack of passion, mm-hmm. <laughs> the British political system. The lack of care. Uh, uh, than it does about me. Um, and, I, and I'm and i not aware that I have ever lost my temper um, in the House of Commons <laughs> or in a speech. Um, um or lost control. Um, so I'm. I don't know if I would use the phrase uh, angry. Uh, so I do think those things play to a degree of stereotype. All I can say is that I am authentic and that I believe in the power of representation because I, because I believe in democracy. And if you don't believe in democracy, then you really are getting to anarchy and uh, you know so and and chaos. So I I, uh, you know democracy is important to me and therefore representation is important and in within the confines of that representation then it is it's hugely important that 
people understand that when I'm speaking, you know, if you think I'm being passionate, come spend some time in a barbershop in Tottenham. <laughs> because I'm telling you, nothing you hear from me is anything like you're hearing in the barbershop. Absolutely not. Which is, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's, that's the focus group of opinion for the community that I represent. And so mine is a sanitized version of that opinion. Well, okay, so this question is not sort of the inverse of my last one, because I don't think that care and passion can be equated to, you know, the opposite of patience. But yesterday, you were sort of trending all over because a woman called into your LBC radio show and said you couldn't call yourself English because you're not white. And, you know, everyone was talking about the patience you had and the grace you held in responding to her. And I'm just wondering how, because I would have been like, all right, ma'am enough from you like we don't need this conversation's over for me look i i, I want to say that that woman was 80 um i was brought up to respect my elders whatever they're saying um i think a lot of people have focused on her um the truth is it's a universal experience to have grandparents that say things that are so inappropriate um and you would never want them to be in public that is the sort of truth right now she expressed some views openly that were racist um the truth is there are people a lot younger than her in our country who have those views but they aren't open about them that's the first Mm -hmm. thing uh the second thing there's been a lot of comment with the way i dealt with that i I don't know i think a lot of black people um in terms of microaggressions and macroaggressions are they're used to the daily grind of navigating these obstacles and they have to stay calm because that's how they keep their job that's how they put food on the table um so i haven't seen black people commenting quite in that way because black people know that this is what this is how you deal with these situations is is the Mm -hmm. truth but i think the bigger point that i'm concerned about is not this woman and what she said it's that um she was expressing the fact that i can't be black and english I can never be English. I'm African-Caribbean. Um, and the point is she has an ethnic nationalism. But the real point is that this is a systemic issue in Britain because in the census that has just happened in Britain, I cannot put down that I am black, Afro-Caribbean and English. I can't do that. And more importantly, my children can't put that down um who are of mixed heritage because their mother is white and english they're not allowed to claim that english identity presumably because of their father that is the question that's a much bigger question than this woman um it's that the system supports this woman actually and we need to 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 live in that and unpick that it seems to me that's the issue. Too easy. Well, it sounds like Too everyone needs to, to read Tribes then. That's what it sounds like I hope me. so. Thank you. I thank you. No, I mean, I put a lot of effort into it. I'm glad that it's being well received. In some ways, when you write a book, the wonderful thing about writing a nonfiction book is that you know your mind at the point at which you've written the book. And, um, and so when these issues come up, you know how you feel about them. And that's, you know... I put a lot of effort into that book. It was not just, a, it's, it's got a lot of stories in it. It's a therapeutic exercise for me to write and put down my feelings and unpick 
these issues and tell these stories about who I am and why I have the views that I do. What is your greatest fear for humanity? I think the climate emergency is a very real fear and I think that is the number one challenge that we are facing. So that is definitely my greatest fear for humanity. And what is your greatest hope for humanity? Oh, look, I still, I think there's lots of reasons to be hopeful about our young people, wherever they are in the world. I'm very privileged to spend time with them wherever I am in the world and whether it's in a a, a market, um, in um, Niger, or Ghana or Kenya or whether it's the young people of the Caribbean in Jamaica or Guyana or or whether it's the hope I get when I'm privileged enough to visit a community like the one I grew up in um, in Chicago, LA, New York, Boston um, it's the young people that give me a tremendous amount of hope um, I think that the baby boomers and the 1960s, it was a tumultuous period. Um, you know, we lost people like Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, but we did move forward hugely. And I've got a feeling that this younger generation, yes, we're living in some bumpy times, but they're gonna move the forward greatly. They're gonna protest, they're gonna campaign, they're gonna get educated, they're gonna be political, and they're gonna move the pendulum forward. And that excites me greatly. Well, David Lammy, thank you so much for coming on Everyday Ubuntu. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for asking me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.